Hello, and welcome to The Heart of It, the podcast that gets to the heart of what we do and why we do it. I'm your host, writer and author Kate Sevilla, and each week I'll be taking a closer look at the working lives of passionate and creative people. This week, our guest is best-selling author Laura Jane Williams. Laura is the author of the romantic comedies Our Stop and The Love Square, which I feverishly consumed within 24 hours, and also has two nonfiction books, Ice Cream for Breakfast and her memoir, Becoming. I talk with Laura about the realities of being a published author, including what it was like to be a nanny while also being a dating columnist for a national magazine and having a book out at the same time. We also discuss what it's like to write full-time, her relationship with money, and her fearless approach to trying new things and not being afraid who sees it. Plus, of course, she tells me what's ultimately at the heart of her work. Laura Jane Williams, welcome to the Heart of It podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of this course. is a joy and a pleasure. So what I would love, where I would like to start with all of this, Laura, is mm. basically, you didn't go to university right away. You traveled, and then mm. you went to the University of Derby, and you did very mm. well there. And then you worked abroad teaching English in the summertime to help pay for your schooling. You graduated mm. at 25, and then mm. you lived in more countries. <laughs> How many yes. different countries have you actually lived in? Do you know, I've never wanted to be so obnoxious as to tally it up so that it could be you but know you like must. you see it you must know you <laughs> see it in dating profiles and on like travelers instagram profiles where they're like on my 38th country and every time <laughs> i just think you prick <laughs> like who who's counting you know like travel is wonderful but i don't have a map by the side of my desk where I'm like little scratching off every <laughs> yeah I don't know I've been to a lot of places and you have and none of it's been planned for maximum show off or <laughs> you didn't have you a know, lifelong strategy of just like I want to live in as many <laughs> countries as possible so that I can bring this up in a podcast one day Exactly, and be like, actually, no. it's, it's um, 24. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. I have just, for a solid decade, just hurtled from one place to the other at the whim of the wind. Um, no plan at all. So I don't know. I don't know how many countries, but, uh, you know, a enough. Few. Yeah, 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 yeah. A fair few. Yeah. Enough to kind of describe yourself at one point um, as kind of a, a digital nomad, if you will. And mm. at this time, you were writing and blogging. And then when you were back in London, you then worked at a beauty PR firm. Is that the right term? A PR firm? Is that what they, is that what they say? I've never called it a PR firm. I just, in the in, firm. I worked in beauty PR. Yes. You worked in beauty PR. And um, <laughs> as you share on, on your website, you were subsequently fired from that job. Mm. And you mentioned that probably because they were picking up on the fact that you didn't really want to be there and that mm. you really wanted to be writing instead. Firstly, mm. what made you take that job? And then I want to get into how you felt afterwards when you were set free. So firstly, what was sure. the kind of decision around that? Because it probably didn't make your heart sing from the beginning. No, after gallivanting and then going to university and graduating and living in Rome, at the end of 2012, I came and lived with my brother in London who had a room in the flat he was leasing, renting. 
And I had been blogging and I had been working on my book and I had kind of come to London with the idea that I don't really know how to do this, but if London is like the media capital, I guess I'm going to be here and maybe I'll meet somebody that can share. Like, I don't know. And at one point I was talking to Penguin about my book. Subsequently, that didn't work out, but it really like cemented, okay, I'm going to be here. And because I had been writing on this website, like sharing little vignettes of my life, when we talk about blogging now, I think we mostly think of like monetized kind of influencer work. Very shiny. This was not, this was like a blogger.com, blogspot, because I knew probably to get a book deal, I had to prove I had an audience. So I was working on this blog. I was trying to optimize SEO. I took a a month long internship at an SEO company. The internship became a job. And then one of the clients at that SEO agency poached me. Okay. Okay which was very hard to navigate. And and I was there a year. That kind of, I joked before about going with the whim of the winds. I needed a job. I saw this internship for an SEO company. I thought it might be useful to learn how to optimize the SEO on my website. I was there six months. I got poached by somebody else. And I think was just like, you know, after traveling and just doing what I wanted. Mm. And then getting the bus to Oxford Street every day to work in this tiny team with an inept manager. Yes. (laughs) Writing about stuff I... Yes, yes, exactly. Um, It didn't make my heart sing. I was like, God, this is crap. And I think I was a little bit... I was difficult to manage because I was so frustrated about having this poor manager, but it paid my rent And then ultimately, it was kind of a sideways firing. They wanted me to relocate to Essex, which they knew full well I wouldn't do. (laughs) Curveball, Um, we would like you to move to Essex. (laughs) It's essential to the firm. (laughs) But like, I just remember the way it worked out was was like I gave nothing away in this meeting. And he said, you've got a month to make your decision. And if you don't move to Essex... Like, there's not a job here for you. So I knew, basically, I had, like, two months. Mm, yes. And that was enough to make me go, I just think I'm going to yeah. go somewhere. Like, no, I'm not interested. Yeah. And often yeah. job loss, even when it's one that maybe doesn't completely shock you or is kind of a relief, that often serves as, like, a, a catalyst for making, you know, bigger changes and in, in bigger shifts to like a different industry even Mm. and so what was this time like for you because I think this is around maybe the same time that I that I first met you when you were like yeah I'm not I'm not gonna go to Essex and I'm I'm done with this (laughs) um were you like cool amazing I'm free I can focus on writing or were you also kind of like oh fuck I have to focus on writing now um I think I was having the life crushed out of me by commuting Mm -hmm. and working for other people. I had been saving money with a view to going to graduate school in the States to basically buy myself the time to write. Mm -hmm. And also I knew potentially writing, if it would ever become, you know, a full-time 
you know, salary for me, that might be a long way off. So I also wanted to to teach and I love teaching and I've been teaching in various different guises since I was 18. But suddenly being cut free of this job and I was in when we met and this is Easter 2014. Okay, yeah. I was like 26, 27 in a single bed in a house share in Ealing that cost me like... 260 pounds a month it's like nothing yeah and I had this money saved and I just thought you know what I (laughs) I'm just gonna go and spend the summer in Italy and teach English my friends were running an English language program in Rome and I was like see ya I think on some level I've got this quote on my wall next to my desk the art of mastering life is the prerequisite for all further forms of expression And I think even before knowing that quote, I knew the sentiment of that quote. Yeah. And I knew it was killing my sense of creativity to be in an office and that I never felt more myself than when I was unmoored and unchained. Mm -hmm. So in a way... Deciding to go off to Italy again for the summer and to teach and to have adventures was a way of fueling my creativity. That was a way to fuel the writing. There was no question to me. The objective was get your name on the spine of a book. But the living creatively bit actually felt quite integral to that. I can say that because I was actually getting down thousands of words a week, whether I was blogging or working on the book. And my first book was like memoir-esque. I could have disguised it as fiction. I didn't. <laughs> you did not. So, yeah, I think the idea of adventure really was integral to this idea of a creative life. And I was like 27, whatever. Yeah. Like, YOLO, fuck it. <laughs> I could still keep this 260-pound single room at the back of a house in Ealing and, and have these adventures. You know, I could afford to do that. Yeah. So I did. Yeah, you did. And you've also been really transparent about getting published and what being a published author is like, particularly, as you said, the, the objective was to get to get your name on the spine of a book, um, your first mm. book, Becoming, which was named years before Michelle Obama ever dared to call her own memoir Becoming. Thank um, you for pointing that out. Of course, years before. And you... You were quite open about the fact that, yes, I have this published book, but I'm also still nannying and working at at the same time. And nannying also then fueled your next nonfiction book, Ice Cream for Breakfast, um, which is all about the knowledge learned from young kids and your experiences nannying. What was that period like for you? Because I think a lot of us who grow up and I'm putting words in your mouth. I don't know if you grew up wanting to be a writer, but if you did, I think uh, there is this kind of idea of what it is like when you are published and what it is like to be a writer living in London. What did it feel like for you being like, okay, I've worked really hard and I've been hustling and I've been published and now I must continue to to work really hard and and kind of mm-hmm. hustle at the same time? So in between getting fired from that job and spending the summer in Italy, and then I ended up taking a job in Russia, then I ended up going to Bali and Thailand. And that was really when I was like, inverted commas, digital nomad. I was a digital nomad before that was wanky. Even a thing. Yeah, yeah. I could just work from my laptop. I would teach them English, but also I had started writing for websites. I think by the time I settled in London a few months before Becoming came out, I knew enough people 
within media, working in magazines or at publishers, to recognise that we were all just people doing Mm. our best. And I could kind of see behind the glossy veneer a little bit that maybe if I hadn't travelled or if I didn't live in London or hadn't been exposed to these people, I could have glamorised it a little bit. And actually, no matter which fancy magazine people worked at or which fancy publisher, they still had shitty bosses. They still wanted to leave it all and become Pilates teachers. So it was really interesting to me to be like, oh, I'm doing this amazing thing and this is a dream that I've wanted forever. But suspecting that it wasn't going to change my life, which is a huge lesson that I'm so thankful to learn. And I can actually see it now with a lot of debut authors that they think this is the thing that's going to change everything. And you have to let people live and and have their experiences, but basically it ain't going to be. No. (laughs) It's it's not. I know. And so... um, you know, I, I did have this undiagnosed depression around that time, kind of related to that. It was it was burnout. It was putting so much pressure on myself that stepping away to nanny, I did think, gosh, what if people take me less seriously? Right. And I was actually on a panel for Grazia magazine alongside Bryony Gordon, Jesse Burton, like inverted the commas, proper writers, yeah. the big guns, and, and then me. And I had come from this nannying job that day. Yeah. And I sat in this fancy place and the editor is right there. And I I said, I've come from my nannying job. These guys have got this huge success. Oh, Elizabeth Day was the one sharing. <laughs> the, she, oh, she, you know. who, who is she? Pray tell. <laughs> Jessie Burton, Bryony Gordon, Elizabeth Day, me. And kind of admitted to all these people here, like, I came from a nannying job. You may as well know it. Like, I can't be ashamed of it because it's my life. Yeah. And actually, the the editor of Grazia came up to me very late that evening and said, you have the longest line of people wanting to talk to you. And I think it's because you tell the truth. And it was really vindicating to be like, oh, telling the truth, you can be rewarded from that. And I ended up with a column in Grazia after that about dating I think from telling the truth. So no, so I was a bit embarrassed and a bit ashamed of doing this nannying, but it served me well. It really did. Because that's the yeah. thing is that there is this way of being where, uh, and this is obviously very prevalent on social media, we all know this, of the the shininess, the shininess of publishing, the shininess of our lives and success. And then when you are just honest and go, yes, I have this book in Waterstones, but I also need to make some money. And surprise, that is not the way that you make fuck tons of money with your first book coming out necessarily, mm-hmm. um, unless you are very lucky. And I still have to work in the way that I choose to work as I choose to be a nanny. I think that's right. so good. And obviously it served you really fucking well because then you had an amazing book off the back of it as well. Do you know what? I ended up writing a dating column in Grazia at the same time as nannying, at the same time as being commissioned to write Ice Cream for Breakfast, my second book. And I just, then it became imperative 
for me to share that that was the reality of of my life because it's kind of funny. Like I remember getting a text message from the mum. I called them girl squad. So the mum of the girls I nannied was squad mum. Squad mum messaged me and said, I'm on a plane to Edinburgh. So I picked up a copy of Grazia. Are you their dating columnist? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I was literally (laughs) on my way dropping her children off at school. Yes, I am. And she's like, sorry, my nanny is Grazia's dating (laughs) columnist. Life is ridiculous. That's funny to me. So yeah. So then then there was so much more freedom in talking about it. Then I got the book deal and, and then could afford to stop the nannying but I did that for almost a year yeah that's I mean and that's not an easy job either I think I love that and I love that she didn't know that you Grazia is dating well and it was really in my head of 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 like is this something I need to disclose you know like there's no (laughs) HR department when you're a nanny I know it's a fine line isn't it of uh the professional and the kind of more glamorous sounding things and then the kind of reality of um of your daily life um so as we mentioned before you you have lived all over we won't disclose how many countries we're not sure but it's (laughs) it's many um but a couple of years ago you settled down you put down some roots and you are now in in derbyshire and i'm right in thinking you have family there is that where you kind of initially grew up uh, well, I think I am a bit of a, ro- I was a bit of a rolling stone in my 20s because we moved around so much growing up. Right. So this is where my my parents are from, but okay. this isn't where I grew up. We right. grew up all over, moving every few years. So my parents returned here about 10 years ago. And then two years ago, I was like, well, I'm done with London. It's expensive and there's there's not a lot of space. I couldn't understand how my cousins and things had like, Nice cars and and dishwashers and <laughs> Does a pint tumble not dryers cost you seven pounds and that's because a pint doesn't cost seven pounds exactly yeah. so uh, the, the yes, avocado they, toast up there is cheaper than it is it, it's also not as good I I can't lie it's not as good but yeah a, a different kind of life yes and I think. Around the same time, I think if I'm getting my timings right, it must have been around thereabouts the same time that you sold your first novel, Our Stop, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Avon. And I kind of wondered, are these two things kind of connected? Do you have this sort of homecoming and coming home to both yourself and your writing? Because mm-hmm. it feels really significant, actually, I think, the kind mm-hmm. of selling your first novel and then kind of putting down putting down some roots. Yeah, it's interesting that you've connected those dots because I think the objective for me was always fiction. And yeah. like I say, I I kind of was like a, the pinball in a pinball machine, went from one thing to the other. I have got no shame about trying things and then they're not for me. I think we attach so much shame value to, oh, you did that and it didn't work out. You must be embarrassed. And I've just kind of never had that about me. I'd go live in this place. I'd go live in that place. I'd try this. I'd try that. But the objective was always fiction. And so I always talk about kind of accidentally writing to nonfiction first. I remember talking to my mum and and saying, you know, I'm thinking about moving to Derbyshire and being closer to you and dad, which came up because my dad had a health scare 
And I remember being in the shower and thinking, if this is positive, if, if dad's not well, I'm going to move and be near him, him and mum. Yeah. And then going, oh my God, why would I wait for them to be, if that's how I feel, why would I wait for dad to be ill? <laughs> oh, he's fine. Okay, was... well, never mind. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that that kind of launched that. So yeah, there was definitely a par- parallelity, definitely something happening in parallel. Yes. Uh, she loves to make up a word or two. What's a podcast a interview unless she's made up a, a word? But yeah, definitely there were, there were, you know, that kind of like coming home to myself, 10 years, 15 years of just travel, moving, never settling down and also arriving to a place creatively that felt good to me. And I remember saying to mum, but what if I move and the book gets signed at the same time and then I'm moving and then I'm doing this fiction and all my, and she's like, yeah, that's how it works. Like when things change, everything changes. It probably will be chaos. And there was such comfort in somebody saying to me, this is a moment and it's going to be big and it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. So yeah, I moved and wrote my first fiction, which was such a huge learning it wasn't a learning curve it was a learning mountain (laughs) and then this fiction book that I wrote um it was only ever supposed to be this teeny tiny project where I my first little step towards (laughs) fiction no one will see it it won't be translated into a bunch of languages and be available in airports and supermarkets I'll just squeak it out into the night (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then it exploded yes which I'm still getting my head around yeah, you haven't really had time just to kind of go. How do I? How do I feel about this? Like you've literally uh, yeah. just been kind of writing, and then obviously your next book after that, The Love Square, also did incredibly well. So you haven't really, <laughs> perhaps, had time to go. Gosh, how do I feel about this? How do I feel? Which process I think- it now on this podcast and tell me. Uh, sure. I mean, what I the thing that I have sat down and deliberately process is so like two things from my experience of becoming and peeking behind the the you know the the curtain of publishing and media and and whatnot and be, and you know managing expectations i think i've always been very aware that the huge advance and the huge success and the waterstones book of the year happens to somebody in my peer group once every couple of years mm-hmm. and the likelihood is it's not me I'd already had my debut non-fiction and and that was not me so why would it be any different for my debut fiction Hmm. and I found a lot of comfort in that I am very big on the idea and I do still teach and I teach this in my classes about getting book deals um, I teach a webinar on on everything I know about book deals because it's again just been such such a steep learning curve. Publishers want to know that you can be a brand. Publishers love a great book, but they don't care if you're a one trick pony. They want to invest in you because they're looking for somebody who can become not necessarily a household name in like a J.K. Rowling sensibility, but that you build up a fan base, you build people that come for your writing. So I've always been very aware of that and very committed to, you know what, book 10, you know what, book 15, you know what, book 20, like I am in this. Because that's how it is I- for so many big names. They, they've written loads before that you've never heard of. Yeah, exactly. You know, Taylor Jenkins Reid, you know, yes. Daisy Jones and the Six. She had five books before that. 
uh, very good books in slightly yeah. different genres. So the the way that I deal within my own fiction and the thing that I have reflected on is, okay, creatively, what did I achieve with the, with this project? And what couldn't I do? You can't do everything in one book. You learn by doing. So our stop was dual narrative, his, her, his, her, his, her. And it was written in the third person. So basically I was writing, I basically wrote 45,000 words from her perspective, 45 from his. So then going into the next book, you sit back and go, you know what? So what's it going to be like to write 90,000 words from one person's perspective? But it was still in the third person. Then I sat down for the next book and outside of the idea, you go, well, well, what didn't I get to do in in the love square okay it was all from one person's point of view penny bridge but it was in a third person i want to see what it's like to write in first person which i deliberately didn't do in my first two novels because i had written memoirs so i wanted to make that yes. very clear distinction with anybody that i was bringing over f- with my non-fiction to my fiction yes yeah, so that was i smart. didn't want to be accused of just writing myself and oh the thing that then, women are always accused of even when it's exactly. not about you <laughs> Exactly. So I thought, no, keep it traditional storytelling. So in my next book, it's now one person's point of view, but first person. How does that feel? Uh, Really interesting because then the next thing that I've been playing with has been in a different tense. So it's in first person, but first person immediate, not first person simple past. Hmm. So instead of saying like, what are you talking about? I said, the project that I've been tinkering with has been like, what are you on about? I say, changing that tense. So, and it it could be very dull to somebody else, but to me, it's like, that's This is like making me sweat just thinking about it because I'm like, that's very complicated. (laughs) That it, I, I fucking love it. (laughs) It, it, those techniques and learning about, well, how, how do I prefer my chapters to be broken up and how do I, prefer the spotlight to be shifted in a story and how do I prefer for action I've I um in my book for 2021 summer there's some physical comedy that I'm really really proud of but that was like a deliberate thing of like I don't know if I know how to do this but I'm only going to know if I try Mm. so that so all of that to say that's what I look back on and that's what I reflect on is kind of well, I suppose the bit that I can control. Yes. Because I can't control. And, and that was the great thing about our stop. You know, it. I have like 25, 26,000 followers on social media. I did not sell 25,000 copies of Becoming. I did not sell 25,000 copies of Ice Cream for Breakfast. I sold 100,000 plus copies of our stop. So it had yeah, gone did. beyond, yeah, holla. So <laughs> it had gone beyond my audience. I can't control that. That's come from the marketeers, that's come from PR, that's come from people whose job it is to get yeah. eyeballs on fiction books. So that was that was a great lesson of like, oh, it really isn't about how many times I posted it on Instagram. That is not affecting book sales. What's affecting book sales is just the stories that I tell so that the people whose job it is, you know, guys in Waterstones going, I've read this book. And if you're looking for one, you know, pressing it into the hands of people buying books. Waterstones leads gave me a whole window display because wow. they loved it so much. They even made their own 
our stop assets. Like we didn't even supply those. They just they, made them. That's they incredible. did it because they loved the book. Like, yeah. and and I can't control. No. Apple made it one of their twelve books. Yes, of twenty nineteen. Yes, I remember this. <laughs> I mean, I ju- like what? I'm sorry. I'm on a list with Elton John. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. So, and then, you know, The Love Square came out in a global pandemic where people weren't traveling and people weren't going into supermarkets because they were getting their food delivered. And so, you know, that did well considering the circumstances, yeah. but performed more modestly. I-, I can't control that. No, you can't. It's nothing to do with me. Do you know what? I mean, that is that is so self-aware and that is so important. And I think it's something I'm quite envious of is that you you don't, and you mentioned this earlier, you don't seem to have that deep-seated shame around trying something new and people seeing you try something new. I mean, I don't know where it comes from, but I do know that for me, not getting in the arena because I'm scared, feels worse than getting in the arena and, like, misstepping. Yeah. So I would rather give it a go. That's brilliant. I don't know where it comes from. Well, I'm sure I'm glad you have it, because it's along these same lines of um, of getting in in the arena and not having this cloud of shame around trying something like oh please don't please don't see that I'm trying this thing you instead live quite audaciously and make these very conscious decisions to like fully grab and go after what it is that you want just completely full throttle what does that kind of feel like for you to just go you know what I want to do screenwriting, so I'm going to do that. I think even when you got your first agent, you just put it out there like, I need an agent. I have this book. Who's going to help me? (laughs) Well, thank you, firstly. I mean, I've been teaching in one way or another for about 15 years. It started out teaching English, and then I became aware of just really enjoying (laughs) when I – worked in Rome I I ran a children's language school but I would still do some adult lessons with the grown-ups upstairs and one of my favorite go-to lines and people would be like oh my English is not so good and I'm like hey me and my ex-boyfriend spoke the same language but we couldn't communicate (laughs) you and I are communicating do you understand and they'd be like uh you know okay your language doesn't have to be perfect to communicate. And I think communicating ideas, communicating information, getting people to understand, I think it's also a way of making sense of my own existence that if my missteps or mistakes or even victories and high points can inform a piece of information that I can then pass along to somebody else, that feels like value to me. Yeah. And I am very into like, you know, the Daniela Port, the core desired feelings, you know, you can chase being the CEO of the company, but when it comes down to it, you know, you just want your daddy to tell you that he's proud <laughs> of you. So how about cut out the 70 hour weeks and figure out a different way to get daddy to say he's proud of you? Absolutely. I think one of my 
core desired feelings, one of the feelings that I'm chasing is something around feeling useful. Yeah. And so if if sharing makes my experience useful, then I want to do that. There are, I mean, don't get it twisted, there are things especially as my career grows and more more people are involved, there are things that I can't necessarily talk about the ins and outs of. Yeah. But I try and be as transparent as possible. But there's a difference, isn't there? There's, be. this is appropriate for me to share at this time. And right. knowledge sharing, which is different. And then there's also this thing that I think women get asked to do particularly women writers, which is um, emotionally bankrupting yourself for the sake of some website's traffic or for the sake of, you know, your social media followers or whatever. And I think that kind of finding your balance with that is difficult and comes, I think, just with experience, because I think your relationship with social media has has kind of shifted and evolved as well. And yeah. I think I remember watching an interview with you where you were saying that you are enjoying the fiction side of things because you can put in as much of yourself as you want and none at all versus nonfiction where it's just kind of like, hello, here are my feelings. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you can hide in plain sight in fiction. You know, what I think and feel about a particular issue can be put into the mouths of many a character. And I find that incredibly freeing. And yeah, it's interesting. I love the turn of phrase where you have said, you know, emotionally bankrupting ourselves. There's definitely stuff I've I've written or shared that was a form of emotional bankruptcy. And when I know too much about an author, it can hinder my enjoyment of their fiction so being like what do I want out there about my life what's appropriate to have out there in my life as I enter my mid-30s and my situation is is different you know and for that to be okay it's so interesting to me getting the old message of like why don't you share stuff anymore or (laughs) why did you delete your archive or for this exact reason pal (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 that you noticed is is interesting to yeah. me. You know, I, I had like 5,000 pictures on my Instagram that went back 10, 10 years. That's not normal that somebody can access that. No. But let it be said, you do not have to be a crazy person to go 10 years deep into somebody's social media archives. No. Because I've done it. Oh, same. same and same, I same. consider myself, you know, I consider myself pretty even keeled, pretty normal, pretty, you know, robust. And there I am, you know, my, literally I've scrolled 10 miles. And here we are in 2010. Yeah, on some, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't even want to name names on who I've done that on, but it, 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 it's not. And I just thought if I am pretty even keeled and I'm doing this to people, people could do it to me. I don't even know what's there. So I deleted yeah. everything. Fair. from like the past 10 years on my Instagram because we're not allowed to evolve. This is the 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 really sure. big downside of 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 the internet and social media is that we haven't been given the sort of space that we used to have, which I'm so thankful I had growing up, 
where you can、mm. evolve, you can change your mind, you can have a terrible, you know, few years aesthetically, and nobody, <laughs> nobody needs to know. <laughs> you know, you're allowed to make mistakes, and and weirdly, because you can so readily available find an image from 2011 where maybe you wrote a caption that was not great, is just it's the same. It's of equal sort of availability as your、mm. more. Heavily considered, you know, better opinions that you have now.、Uh, so I don't. I think that that's. I feel like we should normalize deleting archives. <laughs> normalize deleting archives. I have an automatic thing on my. I mean, I don't touch Twitter anymore because a, I just it's, don't. Yeah, it's, it's a cesspit trash pile. Yeah. But I had set something up that deletes everything from more than six months ago. Hmm. So by the time I've not used Twitter in six months, there'll be nothing on there. Not because I'm ashamed or embarrassed. I just like I have scrolled for ten miles down somebody's history. It shouldn't be up there. There's stuff that could be a security issue. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we were when we were more naive, and、uh, I get why people might feel ownership. But you know, it's not. It's let it's, it go, guys.、Yeah. It's not for you. Yeah, it's not for exactly. you. Um. So Avon. Did a four book deal with you,、mm-hmm. and I remember at the time you you saying like, to have that security for、yeah. for the next few years is amazing, and firstly like huge congratulations because that is you know fucking brilliant is what that is,、mm-hmm. but I talking about that kind of security. What is your relationship with money like now? Because obviously, when we start out, it's it's very different, and then、mm-hmm. when we start to get a little bit of money or have a little bit of security, it changes. So, what's what's your relationship with money like now? I think about this a lot because I'm still not living in a mansion with a chauffeur and a gardener, which is bullshit, you know, and a full time housekeeper. <laughs> I mean, come on, I signed a four book deal. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> And I think increasingly, what I'm recognizing is, I have had job insecurity of my own choosing for 15 years since leaving school, because what was more important to me than job security was feeling like my own boss and feeling in charge of my own time and not having to ask permission to go to the dentist or. <laughs> Take a holiday or a trip, or a, I was just never interested in that, and so that I can now make a living wage. Okay, I don't have the chauffeur, I don't have the mansion. Full transparency, I don't. Full transparency, but that I am earning a, a, a full time salary, cobbled together from the writing, and I do some teaching, and I've I've done some public speaking, that I can pay for my life. Through doing work that is flexible and meaningful, to me, I don't need the chauffeur and the mansion and the housekeeper when what I've got is full autonomy. Yes, I do not take that for granted. I recognize not everybody can have that and can make those choices, but that I knew right from leaving school. That this lifestyle was my destiny. That this is what I needed to operate as a happy human. That I, this is now the way that I operate is like I've got fucking nothing to complain about. You know, everybody wants more money from 
every project. Everybody wants a bigger cut of their royalties. Everybody wants their book to go to Netflix. Everybody, you know, but I get to sit in my underwear and write stories and keep the lights on. You know, I am the most successful version of myself for that reason. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so grateful. But I worked hard and made those sacrifices. You know, I only got a pension 18 months ago. Oh, well done. I haven't contributed to one in that long. (laughs) So it's it's, it's tough. Yeah. You know, I, I don't own my house. I rent a house and that has been my decision, you know, to keep my costs really, really, really low because then that gives me flexibility in, okay, this quarter, you know what? This book is a B plus right now and I can take it to an A minus if I give myself another six weeks on it. And so I'm not taking any other paid work for six weeks, but it doesn't matter because my overheads are so minimal. Like it's cost and value. Everything costs you something. Everything is a value to you. So you just have to figure out to some people, they'd be like, whoa, no way is flexibility more important than like having a mortgage and paying off a house. So yeah. they choose a different route. That's fine. But that I have chosen this route because it feels the most right for me. Like I say, it makes me feel like a huge success. That's wonderful. Um, how best do you like to write? What's your sort of vibe? Are you a, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to just write from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m.? Are you like a, a late night sprinter? It changes a bit, but I've always felt most creative after the sun's gone down. Interesting. Always. So is winter good for you? <laughs> what? But so interestingly... Because I have basically written three projects back to back in order to get a year ahead of myself in this multiple book deal that I've got, The Lucky Escape, the one that's about to come out, is the one that has been mostly done over summer. And that was amazing to like, I know I've said about sitting in my pants, but just to sit in my pants with the back door open and maybe like a gin and tonic and on the sofa and it's like six o'clock, seven o'clock, nobody's on email. That's my vibe. So I prefer writing in the summer. But yeah, when the sun's gone down is good for me. Um, I'm very much a plotter historically. But again, this thing about learning from every book that I do, I've been such a plotter. I feel like my plotting muscle is quite strong. And I did just work on something with less rigidity. And it was very interesting to me to do that. So who knows for the next project that I'm currently cooking up, there might be less planning happening. But yeah, basically, I like to not wear trousers work when the sun has gone down and have a really like 10,000 word plan so I know exactly where I'm going. That is how I write. (laughs) Brilliant. That's how the magic happens. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, One of the things that really struck me is that I wrote wrote down when you were talking unmoored and strategic at the same time. (laughs) So I think you have, I think you're a Gemini as well, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. yes, yes, we are. So I feel like you have this really interesting, on one hand, I lived here, I lived here, I kind of ping-ponged around, I was unmoored. But at the same time, 
you knew, okay, I think the best way for me to get a book deal is to build an audience and to show that I can do that. So you've Mm -hmm. been both unmoored and very strategic at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you've landed somewhere really beautifully in the middle. I know you describe yourself as a a storyteller as well. Um, Ultimately, what do you think is at the heart of what it is that you do? I think making sense of it all. Um, I did. I just, sorry, this is just coming back to me about getting my full astrological chart done when I lived in Bali. And there's a lot of Scorpio in my chart, which is about going like deeper and deeper and deeper, like more. Yeah. And I remember saying to the guy, oh, that is me like 200%. And he went, you see, even your language, like why is 100% not enough? And I'm like, it was just so accurate. I asked him if he had Googled me and like read some of my stuff because yeah, that understanding, that going deeper, that like, I remember him saying, you know, you love to access the dark side so that you can shed light on it. And... I don't know. I just like getting to the heart of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Basically. Um, just to bring it on back. <laughs> yeah, just to go full circle. Yeah, I don't I don't know what drives me. I, I don't know. But I have learned enough to know what doesn't drive me. Yes. And that, again, feels like a coup and feels like a success. Yes, that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we go, what can uh, our listeners expect from you in uh, in 2021? The Lucky Escape is coming out in the summer, a book I wrote in lockdown in my pants, <laughs> which I can't say too much about, but is, I think, the most joyous thing I've ever written because that's all I was interested in in 2020 was like joy, escapism. Yes sexy romance so yeah just lot lots more lots more writing that's the thing you get to a certain point in your career and you can't necessarily talk about the projects that you're working yeah, on but things more were things <laughs> more words kate things are that's happening what you can expect from me um and where can people find you online i am hanging out on instagram at laura jane author and my website is laurajaneauthor.com. She's not on Twitter, guys. Don't bother. She's not doing Twitter. It <laughs> bums me out. Life's too short. All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. I so enjoyed talking with Laura because she really does have such a strong sense of who she is, what she wants, and has such a strategic and fearless way of just going after it. What is it like to live like that? It's something I am constantly battling with, so I love that Laura is a shining example of how you can do this without being paralyzed by a fear of failure. How do you feel about trying something new, just out in plain sight? Does it make you self-conscious, or is this something that you don't even really care about? I'd love to hear about your relationship with trying new things and failure. Give us a shout at Heart of It Podcast on Instagram with your thoughts. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may get your podcasts from. And you can follow us on social media at Heart of It Podcast.